Hello, I'm Michael Desch, and welcome to Outside the Box, a regular podcast series that uh, I do with uh, former Marine, uh, former Assistant Secretary of Defense, former Secretary of the Navy, uh, uh, former Virginia Senator, and uh, 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 presidential uh, aspirant, uh, Jim Webb. Um, Jim is uh, also, uh, given the uh, topic for uh, today's session, which we've entitled Soldiers and Novelists, um, a uh, contributor uh, on that score as well. I was introduce him as a uh, Renaissance man. Um, and uh, once again, uh, he uh, fits the bill to a T. Um, Jim is the, the author of uh, two uh, novels, uh, um, or no, actually uh, three novels, uh, Fields of Fire uh, about uh, Vietnam, uh, The Emperor's General uh, about Japan, and uh, Lost Soldiers. Uh, Jim, great to actually, be here. Actually, six novels. Six? <laughs> but, yeah. Talk to Bantam. They're uh, short, short changing. That's they were they were promoting that particular book at the time because they were Bantam books. So, so <laughs> it's remind okay. us. It's okay, remind Mike. us of the other three. That's okay. People can look that up. So. Okay. So um, I've I've been very interested in uh, bringing you together, Jim, uh, with my colleague, uh, Roy Scranton, uh, who's a uh, uh, professor of uh, English and creative writing um, here at the, uh, the University of uh, Notre Dame. Uh, like you, uh, Roy is something of a, uh, a Renaissance man, um, but uh, made his name or, you know, really uh, first, uh, you know, came into prominence with a, uh, a novel he wrote uh, in 2016, uh, War Porn, uh, which remember, Roy, this is a uh, family-friendly uh, PG podcast, so uh, you know, keep that in mind uh, when we're uh, we're talking about uh, that particular uh, uh, novel. Um, he was uh, that the uh, the War Porn was written in part uh, based on his experience. Um, as a U.S. Army non-commissioned officer uh, in Iraq uh, during the uh, the Iraq War, um, and in addition to uh, the novel, um, he's written uh, quite a bit um, on uh, a uh, somewhat different uh, topic of uh, climate change. Um, but he's also uh, published a, a book um, on the. Uh, scholarly study uh, of uh, war literature, uh, total mobilization, uh, World War II and American literature that came out um, on the University of Chicago uh, Press in uh, 2019. So here I am surrounded by uh, not only former soldiers, uh, Jim, uh, a uh, distinguished former Marine, um, you, a uh, a distinguished uh, former uh, Army NCO, um, but also uh, two uh, very successful novelists. And I've always been curious in my mind uh, about 
the interrelationship uh, between these uh, these two things. Um, and so I've been really eager to uh, bring uh, Roy and Jim together uh, today, and, and I hope it works out. But I think I'm going to have a great time, uh, uh, no matter what. So. Uh, Jim, why don't we why don't we start with you? Um, how did how did uh, being a novelist fit in with uh, all of the other things that you've done in your very full life? Um, and uh, what was the relationship in particular uh, to that and your military experience? Um, well, first of all, let me just say as a co-host here of the of the podcast i'm in a little bit of an awkward position today because uh on the on the one hand we are the co-host but on the other i'm a, i'm an interviewee here and i'll pretty much put that mantle on as we as we have uh, have the discussion um yeah i'll ask the questions here yeah i think that's the better way to do it you know uh, because you're, you're doing a compare and contrast sort of a a, a show here and that's uh, you know that's fine i'm looking forward to, to doing the show too um well, let me start by saying in my in my experience over the years um there, there's so many people i have run into believe that they can do two different things they can write a novel and they can run for office. And, you know, it's a lot harder than it looks uh, in, in, in both of those areas. Um, and for me, you know, it, it, to, just to take your question, um, it, it's, this wasn't so this hasn't been so much uh, my experience as a, as a novelist affecting the other things that I've done. It's kind of the other way around. I mean, I, I, uh, there, there was a, W.H. Auden wrote a, uh, a, a tribute to William Butler Yeats when he uh, when he passed away, saying, "Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry," <laughs> and you know I think that's really how I uh, decided to write my first novel, Fields of Fire. Um, you know, I I had uh, been in uh, you know in Vietnam during some of the worst times of of the war. It was a very misunderstood war. And for the Marine Corps, we we lost one hundred and three thousand killed or wounded uh, in in that in that uh, war. I, I uh, commanded a rifle platoon and in a company in the in the platoon. You know, any any given day, I probably had on a good day, I had maybe 43, 45 Marines in in. Uh, my platoon, and in one period of eight weeks, we took 51 Purple Hearts. Um, two of my three original squad leaders were killed. My third squad leader was shot through the stomach. I went through six radio operators, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I came back and, um, you know, entered Georgetown Law School after I had uh, been medically retired from being wounded. And I, I was constantly being uh, like, you know, like, I don't even know what the right word might be. Uh, I was, I was constantly being um, subjected to different understandings of what that war was all about. And it was in the same age group, which was what was so hard for, uh, for me as a, as someone who had gone into uh, that, uh, uh, academic environment. And after a, a couple of years, I was sitting in um, constitutional law class and we started studying the War Powers Act. And it just immediately with 125 
students in the room and just immediately it turned into a, you know, just this animated discussion about the war in Vietnam and how wrong it was and how, you know, we're talking about baby killing and drugs and these sorts of things. And I was sitting in the back row where I usually sat. And I just said to myself, you know, if, if these people were honest, morally honest, uh, if I put them in an infantry unit, uh, Marine Corps infantry unit for six months, let them see how difficult this was on a moral level and on a, on a combat level and on a hygiene level. If they could just see that, what would they be saying right now? Would they really be saying all this stuff? Politics aside. And I sat there in the back uh, of the class and I started writing Fields of Fire. I wrote, uh, began writing a scene of uh, this, this uh, former Marine who uh, came back to Harvard uh, and was subjected to the same sort of thing. And so I actually ended up um, as an act of will writing uh, this novel. I had studied uh, engineering as a, as a mandatory major at the Naval Academy and uh, I was able to pick a minor. My minor was in literature. I was very well read in, in literature. I was always fascinated by uh, particularly the 20th century, early 20th century authors. But I, I basically wrote this book learning how to write. I wrote it seven times cover to cover. It, it was uh, rejected by 12 publishers. You didn't want to be writing about uh, the Vietnam War right after it had ended when everybody was going, oh, please get me away from this. When I finally was able to get it published, um, Prentice Hall made a deal with me. They said, uh, uh, we will put your book on the cover of Publishers Weekly, which they did. We will give you $5,000 <laughs> for four years of work <laughs> uh, and we'll, uh, print, you know, we'll print 5,000 copies, but we'll send you out on tour. And I went out and I, we did the tour and it, it became a vastly popular um, book. It's, uh, sold in a number of countries, was a bestseller in, in the UK as well. And that started uh, my process of of becoming a novelist. And I've always said, you know, I, I've, I've loved writing and I liked running things. Those two things come together. And uh, the, the function of writing, being a writer has helped me in the, uh, the government world, the public service world, because you think differently when you're a writer. Uh, you think towards solutions. You know, for instance, when I was in the Senate, I would, I would it wasn't just, you know, kicking kicking the can down the road. It was, how do we solve these problems? And it was very much a function of the way that you approach things when you write. So um, learning that discipline and applying it really is the principal part of my professional life uh, has, has uh, spilled over into this other world uh, in a way that they, they feed each other, but also they're, they're very different worlds. Great. So, Roy, War Porn wasn't your first book. Um, your first book was Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Um, but in terms of uh, our discussion today, it, it was, I think, the, uh, the book that really put you on a lot of people's uh, radar screen, certainly uh, my radar screen. Where did that come from? And what was the interrelationship between that and your uh, you know, service in Iraq and your, you know, uh, stint in the uh, military. Uh, well, thanks, Mike. That's a really um, generous and open question. And um, uh, it'll take me a minute to, to sort of unpack some of that. Um, but first, uh, first of all, I want to I want to say uh, thanks not just to you, Mike, for having me on, but also um, 
to Jim, if I can call you Jim, uh, I'm, um, it's an honor to meet you, um, your, your work and your career. Um, but also I, I need to thank you, uh, cause part of the reason I'm here today at Notre Dame, um, is because of the work you did with the post nine 11, um, GI bill. Um, and so that's, um, I may touch on that some as I, as I go back through, um, but I just wanted to get that out there. Thank first you. of all, thank you so much. It made a huge difference for me. And it made a huge difference for a lot of other vets that I know personally. Um, it was it was really important, um, and so it's an honor. Um, so, I, I I mean I've I've wanted to be uh, I guess the the way to start this is um, my first published book. It was Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, um, but I'd written War Porn years earlier. Um, I actually started writing war porn. I was still in the army in Fort Sill, Oklahoma um, in 2005 when I started started drafting that that novel. Um, as with as with Jim's story, um, you know, writing a novel is hard uh, and it takes a long time to get it right. Um, and and as well, uh, there was a lot of resistance from um, gatekeepers, uh, agents, uh, uh, editors, uh, whatnot, um, for a long time to that book, um, because of at first, because I think at first, because there was some, you know, there was some question of how, you know, I think that people were looking for the, the new, the, the Iraq novel. Um, but then, the problem was the, the form of the book and, and its subject matter. Um, and I, and that sort of maybe can take me back to, uh, so back to my military experience and how that relates. Um, I joined the military old for an en enlisted man. I was 25. Um, I had, uh, I'm a first generation college student come from a working class family from a mostly Navy family, actually. Um, sorry, Jim, I know you're, you're, you were a Marine. Um, and, um, but I, uh, I went to college after graduating high school first, first time for, in my family to go to a four-year college. Um, but then I dropped out and sort of lived a various shifting life across, across the U S, um, in the West. Uh, with this, with the idea, the ambition that I would be a writer, uh, there was something about Hemingway and Joyce and Nietzsche and, and all these, um, I sort of soaked in all this stuff, but, um, I didn't think I'd be able to find what I needed as a writer, um, in college. Also, I couldn't afford it anymore uh, and so on and so on. There are a lot of reasons why I dropped out. Um, but then I just wrote for years and worked, you know, jobs in food service in various places. Um, and it was after several years of that and writing and writing and writing, um, wrote a couple novels that no one will ever see. Um, and uh, I found myself living in Moab, Utah, uh, working at a, a bookstore and a coffee shop. Um, and then sort of three things happened in rapid succession um, that interrupted that desert idol um, uh, a friend in the community died, um, um, 
I had a bike accident and, and knocked out my, uh, one of my, or uh, almost entirely knocked out one of my front teeth and I couldn't afford to get it fixed because I didn't have health care. Um, and then uh, some guys uh, flew an airplane, uh, a couple airplanes into the World Trade Center. Uh, after, at, at that point, that, um, that sort of shift in that moment um, sent me into reflection and it uh, raised a lot of questions for me. I'd, I'd sort of considered myself a knee-jerk anti-imperialist by that point, and maybe it was a reaction against growing up in a Navy family, military family. Um, but the those acts of uh, terrorism, those acts of violence really put the world into question for me. Um, and I wanted to, I don't know, I wanted to see how the world had changed. Um, up close uh, to see what George Orwell called the, the dirty work of empire um, as it was being done and to see if it was really as, as bad as all the critics said, sort of to ask the question um, that Jim, I, you, it sounds like you you sought to answer in, in your novel, like what's it really like where these horrible, supposedly horrible things are being done? Um, and they are often quite horrible. Um, so I wanted to see that and then I also, wanted to go back to school. I, I needed to get my teeth fixed. There are a bunch of motivations there that sent me um, into the military. And as well, um, I, I being a writer was part of it. I wanted, I wanted to, um, the tradition of war literature uh, is a rich one and it was an important one to me. Um, and it seemed like a kind of passage I had to go through in order to become a, uh, there's issues of masculinity wrapped up in that, um, you know, again, coming from a military family, but then also some sense of having to go through a rite of passage as a writer to have that kind of originary experience, that kind of, you know, experience that, that sets you off in that, in that new identity. Um, yeah. And so I went to Iraq where I, I, um, minor correction, I wasn't, I wasn't an NCO in Iraq. I, I got my sergeant stripes later. I was mostly a Humvee driver. Uh, I was a specialist. Um, you know, um, I was in a, they don't need to go into too much detail, but um, mostly, you know, we, I drove around Baghdad a lot. Um, I can talk more about that uh, if, if we want to talk about it. Um, relatively uh, easy tour, um, all things considered. Uh, I feel very lucky about that. Um, which years were you there, Roy? 2003 to 2004. Okay. So that's OIF1, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm, I, I'm not sure of the exact specifications. We might've gone into OIF2. It was after the yeah. war, after uh, we declared victory and everything, but, um, uh, before the really bad civil war, uh, emerged in 2005 to 2006, it was a messy, it was a messy time. Um, particularly at the beginning and the end. Um, yeah. Uh, but then I, you know, I came out and then um, started working on war porn, um, went back to school and so on and so on. And uh, I got out of the army in 2006 and then war porn, war porn was published in 2016. So you can imagine that that 10 years uh, was a process of writing and revision and rejection uh, and so on and so on. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of mentors and friends who who helped me along the way. But that's sort of the 
the context I would give for that, uh, for how war porn came out of that. Um, one last thing I'll say, uh, and then I'll stop talking for a second, um, is that part of what was important to me about war porn and why I think it had a hard time finding, uh, get it making its way through the through the gatekeepers um, in the in the industry is that, um, as I mentioned, like some of some of the uh, the the war literature tradition is very really important to me, but part of what I was doing with war porn was uh, was trying to break apart and and um, I hate the word critique, but critique some of that to 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 show how some of that works in our society toward toxic or or um, you know damaging ends, uh, and how some of it doesn't work, and 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 just how it works in us. Um, and so the form of the book is um, is notable in that um, there is there is the story about uh, um, specialist Wilson, who's a Humvee driver, that's based very closely on my own experience. But that's just one of three narratives. the The book begins and ends with a story about um, uh, psychologically damaged, we could say traumatized veteran who's who's come home and is at a party with some 20-somethings, uh, some friends uh, at a, a barbecue in Utah. And he was, uh, he served in a kind of Abu Ghraib uh, prison situation. Um, and so that's his experience. And he brings that into, into the party. In fact, he brings that home. Um, that bookends the novel. Um, and then the next layer of the onion in is Wilson's story about a, being in Iraq um, and what that's like. And then the core, really the core of the novel is um, about an Iraqi mathematician named Qasim, who um, it's with him that we see the days leading up to the American, the beginning of the American bombardment and invasion. Um, and then, and then through through the American invasion and the effect that that has on Qasim and his family and the decisions he has to make as a Baghdadi and as an Iraqi. Um, and then Qasim comes back in the later sections of the novel. So my intention was really um, one of the main narrative traditions of the, of the, um, of the American war novel um, is the kind of there and back again story, which is an important story, but it's also, I think it can often leave out some of the, the context that needs to be there to understand um, understand something like Iraq, the Iraq War, the, the occupation there, um, and so that's why it was uh, it was central to me to have that be, be part of it, but also juxtapose it against Qasim's story and to juxtapose two different stories of of veterans um, so that um, readers would able to would were able to would be able to um, have develop a, a deeper or broader understanding of, you know, what it's, what it's like, or, or even just the, the phenomenon itself. So it's well, interesting. That, uh, um, go, go ahead, Jim. Well, yeah, if I, if I could uh, just relate to some of the things that Roy just said uh, in, in the, uh, the context of how these novels get published and the, the things that are in them, um, as you were talking about, uh, the Iraqi character in in your book in in Fields of Fire, my you know my uh, Vietnam novel. There also is a Vietnamese character who we stay with all the way till 
after the Americans have left. And he is, uh, he, he's kind of, he kind of carries the Vietnamese story with him all the way through, you know, his, uh, uh, his brother is a Viet Cong and is killed and the, and he just wants to be a farmer. He's got kids. And so the, the, the Viet Cong come and they make him go to take his brother's rifle and go do that side of things. And all, he tries to escape at one point when they let him go back to see his family and they kill his family off. And he comes over with the Americans and he's a scout with the Americans. And then after the Americans leave, you see him when uh, the North Vietnamese are coming and uh, to take the country. And he, he's been a, pro a propaganda guy at one point for the communists before he, before he went over to the Americans, he knows exactly what to say. And you get the, you get the notion at the very end of that, that yes, they will endure. You know, the Vietnamese are so resilient, they will endure. Um, but another point came to my mind, Roy, when you were talking, and that, and that was that, uh, you know, when I had all this difficulty getting this novel published, and it sold a million copies, uh, but getting it through the door, one of the things that I was being faced with uh, time and again in these rejections is that the, the, the prevailing orthodoxy of the Vietnam War was so different from, them, from what I was trying to say. And that's sort of a little bit what, what, what you're saying. And in fact, when I finally got the, no, uh, the, the novel to a place where they were going to publish it at Prentice Hall, which didn't have a big trade section, a great, great uh, academic book section at the time. But the, the editor-in-chief of Prentice Hall was a guy named John Kirk, who was a, a, a Harvard guy, ironically, because the Harvard character in the book is kind of a foil. He's an intellectual, he's, he's a necessary intellectual entity. And you see him at the end, but Kirk, uh, uh, was a naval aviator in the Korean War, and he sent me a note when I you know, I was like, someday, you know, like ten years, you know, someday this is going to. I mean, I'm not going to screw it up, and you know, someday this is going to be out there. He sent me this letter, and he said the great war novels are always the ones that go against the prevailing orthodoxy, you know, all quiet on the Western Front, um, the the mailer book uh, from. Uh, from World War II, the same the naked and the, the naked, dead. yeah, the same yeah. thing where you know the naked and the dead comes out, which is very cynical at a time when everybody was like this. And the message in my book, which which John Kirk finally got, was whatever you think about that war, you cannot deny the people who went there the validity of what they did. Put a put a label on what they did. You cannot deny them the validity of their service and make your own mind up. And and it's you know in my you know. My judge and what I was writing at that time was the third Marine down there and a third fire team who, when he reads this book, is going to say, well, you know what? That that was the truth. You know, that was the truth. This was not being varnished to make it something otherwise. So a lot of parallels and, uh, you know, what it took to get fields of fire through the wickets on one set of uh, prevailing orthodoxies and what you had to go through for 10 years on yours. So, Sorry, Mike, just want to in, say that. In, in, well, no, I mean, it's your show, so you should. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm the interviewee here. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just the moderator. But, you know, what, what was so striking is you guys haven't met each other uh, before. Um, and uh, I, I'm glad there's uh, such an immediate chemistry. But it's sort of, in a way, not surprising that there's an immediate chemistry because there's a lot of similarities as you're sort of telling your stories. You both come from military families. Um, you're both obviously free spirits. Um, 
but you're also incredibly hard-headed. Um, and of course, I know this painfully because I work with Jim <laughs> on a regular basis. But, you know, I mean, to uh, it, Roy's, uh, you know, uh, vignette about uh, 10 years, uh, you know, war porn uh, sort of percolating. And Jim, how many publishers did you say? Dozen, you dozen, dozen yeah. rejections. Yeah. yeah. So what about those things um, is most essential or are they, are they all essential? Well, let me just, um, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a shorter answer than I, I normally would have since I took a long period of, of my time otherwise. But one of the things I think if people who have gone through combat, particularly heavy combat, uh, I, I gen, generally agree if, that, it, that was the most apolitical environment I have ever been in. Uh, that, you know, there are not a lot of people in, in the, the, the places that we were in Vietnam who were sitting here arguing about the politics of the war. They may not have wanted to do what they were doing right then. They may have, you know, complained over here and, and uh, may, they may have uh, seen some things that were, you know, morally you know, uh, difficult to process. And, you know, it's, it was a, the, the, the places that I was in, in in Vietnam were the most morally difficult places in the war. If you're having to make decisions as a, like a rifle platoon commander or, or a company commander or a squad leader. Um, but no one was ever sitting there going, you're wrong about the politics of this war. You just set all that aside, you know, just, just put it in a box, bury it. When I get out of here, I'll, I'll open it up. And, you know, frankly, Whatever people's opinions are on these sorts of things, I respect. There were 2.7 million people in Vietnam, and there were probably 2.5 million different opinions about, you know, what they were doing. So, Roy, what about uh, uh, the military lineage and the Scranton family, your vonder, your vonderlust, um, your hard-headedness? Uh, seems to be a pattern here, huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I well, um, let me. Sorry, I'm. Uh, is there is there a question yeah. there, Mike? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is there a question? There's there's a big there's a big question. Yeah, which is there's an archetype here. I'm here. I'm talking your language, Roy. Archetype. Okay. You know, uh, uh, that seems to be a a, a sine qua non uh, for a successful war novelist. Um, is that really the case? I, I don't uh, I don't think so. Um, and and in fact, that's part of. Um, so, as I was saying, part of the work of, of war porn is in um, thinking through the mythologies of war um, that, and part of, part of it for me was the mythologies around the Vietnam, Vietnam War, um, uh, Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket and books um, like like yours, Jim, and Robert Mason's Chicken Hawk, and uh, Michael Hare's Dispatches, and Tim O'Brien, and, 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 uh, and, and this um, part of, uh, I think, what I had inherited was this idea that war was fundamentally a traumatic experience, that that was the, 
that was the essential character of, of war is that it's like it's um it's a kind of um rite of passage uh and you you go to war and then you're traumatized uh you have you i think chris hedges talks about it in in his book it, you know you you see through you tear apart the that you tear back the veil of civilization and you see reality and then you come and then you come back um and according to different um models uh you know different things happen uh you either reintegrate into society or you know you start shooting heroin or become um, a or college you, professor you become a you, you write about that's it. when you really hit rock bottom that's that's what that's that's the nader no question um but in, in any case, uh, so this in, this idea of of the experience of war became, it seems, predominant um, in American war literature, particularly um, in in the in the war literature of the the Vietnam in the in the reception of the war literature, the Vietnam War, um, and in critical understanding about it. Um, and so this is where my sort of some of my academic work comes in as well. Um, there are all kinds of books that don't fit that, fit that narrative. And, um, and there's no question that, that lots of people, um, come back profoundly damaged in spiritual, physical and spiritual ways. But that did not seem to be the, like the right way to understand after going to Iraq, I had a spiritual awakening or, but in a completely different way than I had expected. Right. Um, uh, because that did not seem, that was not my experience of the war in Iraq. And that did not seem to be the way to understand, um, this American invasion and occupation of, of this country. It didn't, it, you know, it, the, the, I mean, there, there were traumatized American veterans, but like, that's not the key aspect of, of, of this phenomenon that we need to be talking about is like how much it's hurt Americans to invade Iraq. Um, and so that, that was part of, uh, part of the effort of war porn and then total mobilization. Um, the, my monograph, uh, was in tracking that, how that narrative emerged. Um, and it goes back to, you know, um, Stendhal and, and, uh, the, the kind of the turn in the, the early 18th, uh, early 19th century, um, this emergence of, of what's called the cult of sensibility. And you can see it happening in Tolstoy through Hemingway and the, the trench poets and so on and so on. Um, and we can talk about all that. Um, and that's part of the story I tell in, in total mobilization. And, and what interested me there was that it's not actually, that's not the story in World War II literature. Um, it's a much more complicated story that's sort of been covered over by this, this, traumatic interpretation um so yeah uh I, um you know i don't I, I don't i don't know if i can position myself as as an archetype or or uh in that way but in some sense i have always been interested in these myths that through which we construct our lives in, in part because i feel like i inherited a, a great many myths that were of no use to me or that that were mis misapprehensions or misfits with reality, um, and from um, early on, I've been interested in both the power of the myth and um, and the and the 
the ways that these myths can damage and constrain us, but then also how do we how do we work our way out out of them or or through them or um, and it, you know how do we how do we grow out of these myths um, and is that possible? So Jim, well, let me if uh, let me go ahead. if I could take a like a, a little bit different uh, tack on your on your question. I mean, your your question basically was, uh, do you have to be uh, uh, does being a war novelist make you stubborn, or do you have to be stubborn to become a war novelist? Something like that. Yeah. Um, let me let me just back up a little bit here. Um, you know, first of all, I, are you going to deny that up, you're stubborn? No, I grew up. I grew up in a very stubborn culture. The Scotch Irish mountaineers, mountaineers. You know, and and their whole foundation out of the Scottish Kirk and the during the Protestant Reformation was that. The, the, the basically frontier democracy, you know, the, 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 the lay people ran the church and the, 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 the word from them when they came through, through Ulster here is no one has a responsibility to obey an act from their, from their governing people if it, if it uh, goes against their moral beliefs. And that, I will say no. I will always say no. I was brought up that way. Don't do it if it violates that you know that piece inside you. And I had that tested over and over again in in a, in a long period of hard combat in, inside Vietnam, and in a way that I will probably never ever have to see it again. There's nothing that I've seen since that that had that same dynamic, that the the depth of that dynamic uh, in 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 the decisions that I was making. And I, you know, there were times when I would say no, and I, and I did in a way that most of the time that was pretty respectful, you know, I mean, I, and I would say, sir, this is not a good way to do this, you know, I, and, and, but there were times when it was different. I had a company gunning by the time I was a, became a company commander, I had a long time out in what we called the bush. And my company gunning came up to me one day and said, sir, if you don't stop arguing with the battalion commander, you're going to be the oldest captain in the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still working on that because <laughs> I left the Marine Corps as a captain. Uh, so that is that is something that, you know, whatever the cost, whatever the emotional costs and the physical costs, that's something that I know I knew inside me. It, 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 it had been tested well before then, but I knew inside me that no one was going to going to make me do something in in government in any in any other scenario uh, that violated my beliefs uh, my belief systems and it's kind of funny when when Obama was elected uh, in his first term you know I had campaigned for him and and that sort of thing and um, I think it was Politico had a issue that the ten the ten people that that. Uh, Obama's going to have to watch out for, even though I was a Democrat, I was number nine. It said, well, because nobody ever knows what he's going to do. <laughs> but, you know, so, you know, but the bigger question or the bigger uh, answer to your question uh, with all of that in mind is that uh, um, I think being a writer in general requires this sort of independence and, and you know, just self, you know, self-regard you put it on yourself i accept responsibility when things work and i and i accept responsibility when they don't work uh and it it requires pretty tough skin and uh you know you don't you're not sitting here getting paid um well there's so many people who are writing 
successfully writing books also have affiliations now that allow them, you know, the, the financial benefits of, of being able to spend the kind of time that, that they need. But basically, it's a tough profession. Yeah, no, I will, clear, I will say, is. Mike, uh, I, I'll say as well, to, I guess, more directly answer your question. I, it was often, I mean, I tell my students this, like the, the three, the three qualities that define the whether or not a writer will will be successful um, uh, in in increasing order of importance are uh, first is talent that's the least important aspect uh, second is luck um, you know whether you're born into it or whether you have the connections or where you meet the right person the right agent at the right time or what have you the most the single most important quality I've seen again and again is simply persistence um, the you know the the one that the, the, the ones who stick it out the longest are, are the ones who can make it make it work. So, I mean, that's at the level of, of the, you know, s- sitting down and doing the, the labor of putting words on the page, but then also just like putting it out there again and again and not accepting rejection and being just totally stubborn. Yeah. So I have a question I want to ask both of you. I'll ask Jim first because um, it uh, came up in sort of his... Uh, autobiography. Um, Jim came to uh, write Fields of Fire because he felt that something about most Americans' understanding of the uh, Vietnam experience was defective. Now, uh, it seems to me there are a number of ways, if you believe that, you could challenge that. One is, you know, you go out on the you know, the speaking tour and talk about, you know, your real experience in Vietnam or, you know, you get involved, um, you know, as a historian and say people believe A, B and C, but it's actually D, E and F. But you came to the conclusion that the vehicle of fiction and the novel would be an effective way of conveying to the rest of us uh, your lived experience. And, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about that. Um, and I'd also like to, to hear uh, Royce thinking about that. I mean, there's long tradition uh, of using fiction to, to make important points, not just to, to uh, tell uh, interesting and enjoyable stories. Why Jim the novel rather than all the other ways you could have set us straight about what your experience in Vietnam was really like? Well, uh, first of all, let's let's consider the way that you uh, uh, phrase that because uh, I think, first of all, if you take a look at Fields of Fire, there is nothing political in that book. There, you know, it's people I've gotten thousands of letters on that book from people of all persuasions. There are people who don't like the fact that uh, I, I showed Harvard the, the way that I, I did in the book at the very end. But that really wasn't political. That's just, you know, me defending my part of this age group for the, for the truth. And I, I paid I paid dearly, I think, in, in Hollywood and other places for a long time because of, of, of that scene. But basically, Harvard lost, I think. 591 people in, in World War II, and they lost 12 in Vietnam. Harvard College, Harvard College, 12, 12,595 graduates from 1962, 1972. And that was from the registrar because I had my research assistant actually call to get the data. Um, but that's it. There was no politics in there. So the, the, the feeling about literature and, and, uh, and film uh, is that 
if you can affect people's emotions, then you will change their attitudes or you will, you will cause them to consider their attitudes. And if, if, they, if their attitudes change or, or become a little more rounded, then that is going to affect a lot of other things in the, in, in the country. That's why powerful film right now is just such a vehicle in fact, there's a lot of argument about maybe Hollywood right now has gone too far over on the, the woke side, et cetera. But uh, so, um, and, and actually I did, I wrote a, uh, when, when Apocalypse Now came out, uh, Washington Post sent me to the premiere up in New York before it came down here. They wanted to get a, a, a story before the, you know, in the, in the same time that the, it was in the New York papers. And uh, one of the things I wrote in this essay, I did that first eight Vietnam films because I you know I couldn't review Apocalypse Now for the Washington Post but I but it was focused on it and one of the things that that I I said in there was that uh, you know in my in my world um, you can go into government and you can try to get things done but you can you can create powerful literature and film and it will affect the way people want you to get things done and you know that's the you know that's the the, the two step career that i followed without even deciding to when i was in the marine corps and wanted to stay in the marine corps um, and that's really the, the the difference okay roy how does that uh, resonate with you yeah uh, powerfully uh, it's um, i mean i don't uh you know i i don't work in government um um but i i will but say you that you work in academia i mean your day I, job I, is yeah. uh, teaching <laughs> young people and and i think yeah it's more than teaching them where to put the uh semicolon and the colon you're also there, there's something about your you, you know your uh uh enterprise that's about teaching people about life um, and using literature and fiction to do it. Yeah. So there's there's a lot that, that could be said uh, on this topic, and um, you know, and, and and as well, it's it's um, it's kind of a it's kind of a churn. It's kind of chaos because it's it's absolutely the case that um, mythologies that um, stories frame and shape how we understand reality. They frame and shape how we make politics. They, they frame and shape um, how, how policy gets made, what's important, what's not. And even what we do in a day-to-day -day way um, is informed by, by stories that we tell ourselves at, at you know, various levels from the story of America to the story of Mike Desch and who he is uh, to, you know, so on and so on. Um, and that's, and, and the, the, the challenge, the gamble of being able to create, being able to, to possibly create one of those defining myths is, um, it's intoxicating and um, it, it calls uh, to those of us, I think, who have, you know, part of, you know, one of the reasons why we, why we write, um, at least according to George Orwell, right, is to try to change the world because we believe things should be this way or that way. Um, um, part of it's, you know, saying this is what I saw and this is what I'm witnessing, but part of it's also, you know, I think you should think this way about things. 
Um, you should see the world this way. You should see this truth that I'm, uh, I'm sharing with you. It's, um, it's a bit of a crapshoot is the thing is that you never know um, in your work, like what might, what might connect and what might not. Um, and so it's always, um, um, it's a, it's a complicated process there. And then, and then as well, there's, there's the question of as a literary scholar and critic, um, I think the relationship between culture and politics, um, between it, to use the Marxist terms, base and superstructure, right, is really complicated. And there's a feedback there. Uh, so sometimes culture changes the politics. Other times the culture emerges out of, a, out of our attempts to explain what's happening to ourselves, right? The myths aren't always visions that transform. There's sometimes, there's sometimes rationalizations that explain. Um, and the part of the challenge of writing is that you can't, it's really hard to know what you're doing when you're doing it. Um, you know, the, the creative process is a groping, kind of groping in the fog, um, um, trying to trying to unspool a tightrope as you walk a, along it. Um, and and so it's it's always challenging to know whether the story you're telling is, um, you know, it's some sort of rationalization of what's happening or whether you're creating a new reality. But the 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 opportunity there is. Um, phenomenal and and in either case i mean for myself part of it's not even um i i would say part of it's not i mean there is an act of there is some kind of active active will there kind of commitment but um there have been numerous times when i've thought to myself if i could stop being a novelist stop being a writer i would because it's really a pain it's it's really um it's like there's there's no there's no adequate compensation for the amount of labor you put into creating anything worthwhile on the page, um, except the, the the doing it itself. Like a um, reward. <laughs> what? Yeah. What, like a reward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, I if if I could do otherwise, I would. But this is how I. This is. For better or for worse, I, I this is part of how I exist in the world and make sense of it and try to shape it is by by um, you know putting the semicolon here instead of over there. <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny you would say the guy for for me. I know, um, I know, I am a writer. I wake up in the morning yeah. and I know I am a writer, and uh, more than any other thing, you know. And well, you've mentioned uh, Orwell several times i this, i'm going to read you a quote i have had underneath my blotter <laughs> since 1974 believe it or not the energy that actually shapes the world springs from emotions racial pride leader worship religious belief love of war which liberal intellectuals mechanically write off as anachronisms and which they have usually destroyed so completely in themselves as to have lost all power of action george orwell yeah. So, uh, war porn and fields of fire uh, as a given, uh, 
what are the novels or the war movies um, that uh, each of you particularly uh, admired? Jim. I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> Hard. So let's go to Roy then, and we'll come back. All right. I, I've, um, I've, I, yeah, I'm a literary scholar and critic, so I've thought about this a lot. Uh, so I'll, I'll name a movie and a book, and, and they're not, there, there are others that are really worthwhile, but uh, I, I mean, obviously, um, but there are two that, these two mean a lot to me. One is um, the, the novel is, I would say, James Jones, The Thin Red Line. Uh, the about Guadalcanal um, because uh, of the he when he was writing that book he said he he, he had set out to write a Proustian combat novel um, and and my experience of combat is fairly limited um, but the way that he narrates and describes and is able to give life to the the military unit as an organism in that book and the way that we, he doesn't focus on any individual individual character. There's no protagonist. Um, um, that's one of the major flaws of Malick's film version of the novel is that it focuses on wit too much. Um, it's, a, it's a novel about uh, uh, an infantry company and how it, how it changes as a social unit. Um, and that I think is, I think it's a brilliant book uh, on a variety of levels, um, but I think that's particularly worthwhile about it. Um, and also the the portrait he gives of um, command, I think seems really, really powerful. Um, and it harkens back, I think in a lot of ways to um, the kind of insights um, and depth of, of war and peace, uh, which is, you know, whatever, okay, it feels pretentious, but it's, that's a great book too. But, but The Thin Red Line is um, um, just an incredible, incredible novel um, the terence malick uh, movie version doesn't get uh or gets four rotten tomatoes from roy scranton no i wouldn't say four rotten tomatoes it's its own interesting thing but it's uh it's a betrayal of the book on a lot of levels uh there are some Got ways it. in which he tries to be true to it you know whatever but uh, my war film um which i think malick uh stole from or was inspired by in some ways and as was um 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 spielberg for saving private ryan um for that first 45 minutes anyway is is the um the russian film come and see mm. um i think it's uh by uh, ellen klimov uh and it's the story of uh i it tells you nothing but it's the story of uh you two you young ukrainian um partisans who um uh are like live through um the nazi the german invasion of of russia and it is um it's a harrowing experience it's a, a of cinema um and the everything from the the texture of the light to the sound design just like it's uh, um yeah, if you want to mess up your day, you know, sit, sit, sit with that movie. Um, yeah. I've never seen it, so I, uh, I, I definitely check, will get out, uh, man. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really it's really intense, and it's you know the 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 message. I mean, you know, the message, such as it is. I mean, it's 
war is hell. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it changes people, but people also live through it. And people, I don't mean that in a positive way. I mean, it, they live, they become, they, they, it's a way that people live. Um, and Klimov, I think that, that movie, I think um, Joan's book communicates some of that. Um, and Klimov's film, I think, gets at that as well. Excellent. Jim, have you? Uh... You know, I think that my, my problem is I, I have read a lot and I have watched a lot of film and it's, you know, it's really impossible for me to sit down and pick one. Uh, and, and, you know, I, years ago, there was a book I participated in and um, they asked when they it was published for each of those who participated to give one name of a friend they lost in Vietnam. And I wouldn't do it. You know, it's uh, it's, it's just I still wouldn't do it. I will say um, one of the one of the most moving war films f for me, and this is not putting it totally at the top, but it uh, uh, is Gallipoli by Peter Weir, you know, directed by Peter Weir. It was, uh, you know, one of the uh, the earlier Peter, uh, Peter Weir films. And uh, it, the, the thing I liked about that is it took um, two young Australians just through the process, you know, how they in, ended up going into uh, the Australian army in World War One, and and it, and then uh, this the situation in Gallipoli where the Australians were just raped, uh, and and the, the human element of it uh, from people who really weren't willing soldiers like the commander of the you know their unit who's sitting there writing a writing a letter to his wife was just as this beautiful uh, opera music is playing it, in, the, it leaves in the background the tulip, uh, uh, dance i think yeah yeah and you know and when they knew they had to do something by by uh take writing a letter to their loved one and and using the wedding ring or something and sticking it into the wall of their where their uh, their parapet was those those moments were just really powerful yeah, I, I agree. It's a, uh, a a great movie, um, and uh, uh, actually, Mel Gibson movie, by the way. Yeah, one yeah, of his no, earliest no, no. movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, last time I was in Turkey, I took my younger kids down and uh, walked the uh, Gallipoli battlefields, which was very wow. interesting as uh, as well too. You know, when I think of uh, the literature of war, one of the uh, authors who uh, comes back to me uh, a lot is uh, Ernst Junger, who wrote um, a, a series of, uh, uh, you know, uh, autobiographical pieces about his experience in World War One. And I think uh, The Storm of Steel is probably the, uh, the most famous. That's not uh, fiction. Um, but of course, Junger's life uh, would <laughs> is almost like fiction. A guy runs away when he's underage to join the Foreign Legion and then deserts so he can come back and fight for Germany in World War One, and then, you know, has a very, very uh, interesting um, history uh, subsequent to that. Um, but uh, 
we've only scratched the surface uh, of uh, what we could uh, have you to talk about. Um, and uh, normally that would be a bad thing uh, because uh, when we wrap things up as we have to do in a minute or two, that would be that. Uh, but uh, in fact, uh, I think we're going to have uh, a number of opportunities to get you guys uh, together now that Jim's a distinguished fellow of uh, the Notre Dame International Security Center. And Roy, of course, uh, is a, a faculty affiliate. I think that uh, it would be criminal if we were to uh, only... Um, uh, give the uh, listeners of Outside the Box the opportunity to uh, hear you guys reflect on these uh, very interesting and very important issues. So uh, I think we've got to get uh, Jim back out here uh, next fall uh, and uh, have you guys uh, sit down together with uh, a bunch of students um, and uh, talk about these issues. Love to do it. Yeah, that'd yeah, be a pleasure. Yeah, very, very pleased to do that. So uh, I, I, I'm so pleased that, you know, when you uh, introduce people for the first time, you sort of hope they <laughs> they uh, uh, hit it off. And uh, I, I would say that uh, you guys have uh, have more than uh, than hit it off. And uh, why exactly that's the case, I'm going to uh, ponder. But I think you're <laughs> actually both uh, cut from the same cloth in, uh, in, in a lot of significant ways. Um, and so, uh, Roy Scranton, uh, author of War Porn, uh, Jim Webb, author of Fields of Fire and five other, uh, novels. Thank you for, uh, joining us, um, on Outside the Box. Um, and, uh, this, for our discussions, which we've always tried to sort of push the uh, envelope, I think this has taken us uh, further outside the envelope uh, in a lot of ways than uh, many of our other sessions. Um, and I'm thrilled because uh, I found it uh, really, really illuminating. And uh, it's just whetted my appetite for getting you guys together in person uh, next fall. So Roy, uh, thank you very much. Jim, do you want to add a last uh, benediction before we uh, wrap up this uh, episode of Outside the Box? No, it's my uh, my pleasure to to actually be interviewed, <laughs> which I wasn't expected, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, Roy, we want to do something together. Yeah, likewise. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure and as a, again, an honor to meet you, Jim, and I, I look forward to um, talking more. Uh, and thanks, Mike and Jim, for having me on. Super. Uh, that's it then for this uh, edition of Outside the Box. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd dot edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers not of the international security center or the university of notre dame which take no institutional position music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap